0: First, I want to say uh, uh, we were blessed yesterday. Those that were here uh, for walk through the Bible, it was an incredible experience. And if you get a chance to do that somewhere else, you ought to do it. Uh, secondly, I want to apologize for my voice today. We'll do the best that we can. About three weeks ago, uh, on Sunday morning, uh, if you were here, you heard a dozen or more of us. Uh, kind of give a debrief of our time in Haiti. What you heard from some of us was uh, our experiences just coming out of shock. And I personally was overwhelmed, not just with emotion, but with a whole inadequacy about how to deal with that kind of a situation on a continuing basis, Uh, there are tough issues about how you help someone without making it worse, Uh, uh, people who are in in utter poverty. Uh, Now, someone has said, if you really want to learn about something, teach it, and so at your expense, I decided to start a new series about how to help somebody, how to reach out to others without hurting them. Uh, and today is just a beginning, uh, a, a baseline, a foundation for understanding how we can have effective ministry to the world around us, I hope. Please be patient, because I really don't know where I'm going, all right? Uh, But I want to start with a a saying that you may have heard. And that is to hold one's own. Okay? Uh, An example would be, you know, like a David and Goliath situation and you're watching this unfold and, and you see what's happening. And you say, well, you know, David's holding his own. You know, it's kind of unexpected competence or ability. Kind of the opposite of what the Jayhawks experienced about a month ago for a week, okay? Uh, uh, We we usually consider holding one's own a good thing. The question I want to ask today, though, is, should we as believers, as Christians, hold our own or not? Uh, And to do that, I'd like you to turn to Matthew 25. And here we've got Jesus giving a couple of parables. The first one uh, is about the ten virgins. And, And there he says that the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps out and went to meet the bridegroom. And in those days, it was a big deal for the bridegroom to come out of his chamber and in a procession go to receive his bride. And there would be, this would be at night time, and there would be these virgins who would go along and accompany him with lamps and kind of make a big deal out of it. And in this particular case, Jesus explained that five of the ten had their lamps uh, trimmed and with oil. The other five did not. And they were asleep waiting for the bridegroom to come. And when the shout or whatever it was was, the notice that was given that the bridegroom was coming, The five who did not have their oil woke up and said, what are we going to do? And they were sent off to get oil from the merchants. But, in the meantime, uh, the bridegroom comes. Uh, Starting in verse 10 there in, in chapter 25, while they were going away to make their purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast. And the door was shut. Later, the other foolish virgins, came also saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. You know, we got our oil. But, he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Then Jesus says, Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour when the bridegroom will come. Now, there's various interpretations of this parable, but in context, it at least points to, I think, three things. One is the importance of being ready at all times for the coming of Christ, the bridegroom of the church. Secondly, I think it helps us understand that there are consequences, eternal ones, for unpreparedness and, more pointedly, for failure to, or the putting off of a decision to truly accept Christ as your Savior. When the bridegroom comes, it's too late. Something we studied yesterday in the Old Testament was when the rain was coming down, the water rising up, and Noah closes the door, it's too late for everybody else. Finally, I think... What, uh, In a subtle way, what this parable tells us is that salvation starts with, but does not end with a simple prayer. For some of you, that might be shocking. It is more than a mouthing of a profession of faith, mere words, but it involves believing in the heart. This is called regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And in this parable, it's, it's typified by the oil in the lamps or the lack thereof. So, Jesus immediately after that goes into another parable about the talents. And it says in verse 14, The kingdom of heaven is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own servants together and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and each and to another one talent, each according to his own ability. Okay, he goes on his journey. And the one who got five talents goes out and invests and and earns five more. The one who got two talents goes out and invests and earns two more. But in verse 18 it says, But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Then the master returns. And he says to the one who had the five, now has ten, and to the one who had two, now has four, Well done, good and faithful servants. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. But in verse 24, And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away, and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But that 180 degree word, his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I don't scatter seed. But you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival I would have at least received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the unprofitable or worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the, the parable about the ten virgin stresses the need to be ready, make timely decisions for the Messiah's return. But this talent parable really focuses on serving him prior to his return. God gave each of us talents based, or gave each of these servants talents based upon their ability. A talent was silver money that weighed about 60 to 80 pounds. Not a small sum at all. But this worthless servant reasoned that he could return the talent to his master without the risk of investment. But if the master did not return, he could keep the talent as his own without a bank recording that it really belonged to his master. Pretty sly. In short, he found his security in his own plan instead of trusting his master. He was, in a sense, holding on to his own as long as he could. But then Jesus makes an application. Starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. But then, verse 41, He will also say to those on the left, the goats, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they, the goats themselves, also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Or thirsty or a stranger, or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I think it's pretty clear we're talking about a judgment here. This is not the great white throne judgment of the wicked, but rather the judgment of the Gentiles to determine who will and who will not enter the kingdom. In other words... The goats are revealed as pretenders. This is not about impressing others or salvation by works. Jesus makes it clear in Luke 16 that you may try to justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Rather, this indicates that what we do with our possessions, our time, our very lives, that's evidence, exhibit A, of what is inside us. Like James tells us, works do not save us, but faith without works is dead. This is separating the sheep, the true believers, the saved, from the goats, the nice people, the people that we work with that we live next door to. The people, many people, who sit in pews on Sunday mornings. I hope not, but maybe even in blue chairs in a gym. These are people who trust in themselves and their own plan rather than the master's. Now let's go back. What made that third servant, unworthy, unprofitable, worthless. He didn't lose a thing. He hung on to what he was given. And some parents, frankly, would love to have kids who don't lose stuff and spend all their money, right? Well, clearly these talents are meant to represent the resources, the gifts, the abilities, or if you will, the talents that God has given us. And if we simply hang on to those and do nothing with them, Come our judgment, all we'll be able to say is, well, yeah, even though I didn't use it much, I still have that spiritual gift of serving or exhortation or teaching. You know, I didn't lose it. Here it is. Or, you know, God, I didn't waste any of that money that you gave me at the casino or on the lottery. No, no. I spent it to buy neat stuff. Can you imagine standing in front of the creator of the universe, and that's all I've got to say? God gives us our gifts, our ability, and our money for a reason. They are to be used for his purposes. And one of those is to provide for our own household. But once that's done, we are to invest in His kingdom however He leads. In the process, we trust Him to take care of us because He is the faithful one. We are to trust our Master that the rewards in the mansion awaiting us in heaven for our faithful service and giving dwarf any material or financial security we have here on earth. In short, we are to depend upon Him and not our material riches, possessions, or even our fame or power. But yet, there is another higher sense in in which we might consider ourselves unprofitable servants in which we can hold our own. And for that, we want to look at Luke 17. If you look at that, it starts off with, in verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our Faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. So this is the context. They ask for more faith. And so he explains how to do that as follows. In verse 7, which of you, by having a servant, plowing and tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, hey, good servant, come immediately and sit down to eat. But won't he say to him instead, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself, get yourself cleaned up, and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you may eat and drink. And then the master does not thank the servant because he did the things which were commanded. Does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, you should say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now that's an interesting answer. Here we're not talking so much about the things we fail to do, but, by, but about our attitude our approach to life as believers, really, our faith. We live in a culture in which it seems that everyone has to be made to feel like a winner, even if one loses. Uh, Excellence or exceptionalism are often discouraged. Recently, Christy and I went to a movie, and it had a, a, a sequence or a scene where there was a baseball game and none of the kids were allowed to strike out, and all the games ended in a tie. It reminded me of that torture called T-ball. Okay? Uh, some of you may have experienced that. Um, but, but understand that, you know, in those, at, at that level, those kids rarely know what they're doing. The evidence, they run to third first. Or they're in the outfield sitting down counting clover. Okay? But then I remembered... You know, when David was a teen, he played baseball for Carey Paravel in a pretty competitive league. But at the end of the season, every single member of every team in the league got a trophy. Now, I am neither for making sports the measure of a man, nor for making kids feel worthless. They are all valuable because, only because God made them. But I also believe that God can use both winning or success and losing, defeat, or failure in life to shape our character and to motivate us. I also think there's a difference between self-esteem and self-acceptance. The latter means that one accepts the way that God has made him or her, warts and all. But an inordinate focus on the former can lead to vanity or worse, pride. One of the most plentiful natural resources we have in America is inflated individual pride but it is not what I think that's important rather it's what God thinks rather than self-esteem God exhorts us in lowliness of mind to let each esteem others better than themselves now of course when our kids are on the teams or their music or whatever we should encourage them and make sure they know that we love and accept them even if they or their team loses. Remember, it's a game. But we are doing our children a disfavor, not loving them when we teach them that they never have to lose just so we can build their self-esteem. We are setting them up for an even bigger loss because that simply is not reality. My kids get a little upset when I say that it's probably a good thing that the Jayhawks lose a basketball game every once in a blue moon because it deflates their heads. But being a winner is just as hard to handle. When was the last time you heard at one of those post-game interviews with a college or a professional athlete when they gave praise where it was due? To God and their coaches and teammates? No, no, no. It happens, but it is rare. Most often, it is unabashed self-praise. In fact, when we encourage our losing or our winning kids to have an exaggerated esteem for themselves, we uh, we are tempting them to sin. Now, am I far afield? Yeah, probably so. So let's steer back. There is a concept called Duty. Now, I sense this is an old school term because I just simply don't hear it much anymore. One of the tragedies of our culture is the great dumbing down of duty, if not the total obliteration of it. If I'm poor, if I'm sick, if I run my business poorly, if I can't pay my mortgage, if I make stupid decisions and wreck my life, it's not my responsibility to get get right with God in humility and get back on the right track. It's the government's responsibility to give me a handout or a bailout. In fact, I'm entitled to it, right? Isn't that what we hear every single day? On the other hand, when a policeman or a fireman or a service member goes into a dangerous situation and later he receives praise, the, the response you will likely hear is, I was only doing my duty. That's what he signed up to do. The medals and the commendations and the recognition come when we go above and beyond the call of duty. In fact, the King James Version of that same verse says, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Now, this attitude or approach to which I refer applies to all levels. One recognizes what one is supposed to do, and he does it. Isn't that what you want, moms? Isn't that... Wouldn't you pay? Wouldn't you kill for that? They know what they're supposed to do, and they do it. Whether it's the household chores or making widgets or serving in the church. In other words doing one's duty, holding one's own. However, if you take this in context of what Jesus was trying to say, our faith is increased when we do not just hold our own, but we go beyond the call of duty to things not expected, like doing the chores for a sick brother or sister, or cleaning up the shop floor when someone forgot, or addressing a need in the neighborhood or within the church that no one else sees. Or, giving sacrificially, even beyond a tithe. Oh, now that I've mentioned that five-letter word, let's be clear. In the Old Testament, there was a tithe, meaning 10% that they were to give from their increase. But there was a second tithe that was given for the festivals and the celebrations. And then every three years, there was a third tithe for the poor. That's not to mention the free will offerings that are suggested in the Old Testament. Now, there are arguments for and against applying the tithe under the New Testament. We've discussed those before, and perhaps we will again, not today. But just consider this. The Israelites lived in an agrarian economy, many surviving day to day. God called upon Israel to give over 23% as their duty. What do you think? He intends for us with the way that we have been blessed. Studies show that some of the more fundamental denominations who emphasize tithing end up giving not 23%, not 10%, but more like 2.3%. It's kind of like inverse tithing. Another way to look at it is C.S. Lewis. He gave this advice. If our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. And if you remember Mike's message from just last week, can you imagine what the church would accomplish if its people truly viewed giving as worship? If the world saw God's people helping the poor get back up on their own feet, do you think that we might have fewer social problems? On the other hand, it is, is it any wonder that the government keeps almost half of its citizens dependent upon its good graces by requiring much more than the Old Testament tithe from all the job creators? Now, getting personal here, I'm not trying to be critical, but just honest. I don't know if there's anybody here left who expressed this in the past, uh, but. Uh, we have heard that when Mike or I have taught about giving in the past, some have felt that maybe it was a little overemphasized. Now, now we really appreciate all who fellowship at Lion and Lamb, and we never intentionally try to chase anybody off. And, but people do come and go for various reasons, and we would be naive to think that what is taught is not one of the factors in those decisions. But Here goes. May I make a subtle, sensitive Suggestion to anyone who thinks that there's too much talk around here about giving. Really, get a spiritual life. And what I mean is if you can't give joyfully in this body, as a large family, or as a single adult, you should probably think about finding a church where you can. Because that's important. And if that's not the problem, another suggestion. When we do the Lord's table here in a little while, you may want to examine your heart before the Lord. Now, while there's nothing wrong with being convicted by the Word or being prompted by the Holy Spirit or encouraged by friends to grow in our faith, Paul makes it clear that we are not to give grudgingly out of guilt or a compulsion of any sort. Rather, he reminds us in 2 Corinthians 9 that we should each do and give as we have purposed in our hearts, understanding that God loves a cheerful giver. And while the direct application of that verse is forgiving. I believe this applies to all services for outreach. Whether you're serving in Haiti or the Topeka Rescue Mission, our hearts should rejoice in the privilege of being God's hands and feet here on earth. And if we find ourselves grumbling about how hard it is or feeling prideful about our great sacrifices, we need to remember that we're just doing our duty we are unprofitable servants compared to what Christ did for us. Finally, we should pray that God would increase our faith so that we would have no doubt that He will always supply our needs as we strive to bring others closer to Him. I want to leave you with this. 2 Corinthians 9 Starting in verse 8, says this, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance of every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, He supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality for which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. God gets the credit when we serve, when we give. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Are we okay back there, guys? All right. Uh, I think on your study sheet there's a thing that says a cookie. uh, Is it a J next to that? It's supposed to be a smiley face, okay? That was my intent. (laughs) Didn't work through the computer, I guess. Um, More than 30 years ago, we didn't have any girls. And so, for some reason, my wife allowed my oldest to make cookies. And he came out one evening with a plate of hot cookies. And I said, what are those, Matt? He said, I made cinnamon cookies for you. And they looked great. They were hot and they had the, you know, the red sprinkles on them and all that. So I, you know, I, I was so proud of them. And I took one and I put it in my mouth and I started to chew. And I just about wretched. <laughs> I said, son, what would you put in these? And, and he, he goes back to the kitchen and gets one of those little white cans you know, those rectangular things that have spices in them, and it said, human. And I said, Christy, what is this? He says, well, that's the stuff we use in the Mexican food. Oh, all right. Well, um, in the Marine Corps, we would be subjected to long periods of classroom instruction about such exciting things like the M1A uh, canteen and cup pouch uh, and stuff like that. And when the instructors could sense that we were, you know, kind of dozing off and that sort of thing, they'd say, okay, okay, we've got a cookie for you. And what that meant was a video. Okay? Because no matter how boring the video, it was better than the instruction. Okay? Well, today, we've got a cookie, a video for you. But I want to warn you, this may be a little bit like Matt's cumin cookies. It may be a little bit hard to swallow. Uh, I just urge you, as you watch this and listen to the questions, think about our responses and how are we going to address the needs of the world around us, not just physical, but of lost people in Haiti, In Africa, in New York, in Topeka. Okay, let's roll them.